Jesus has been tried before the religious leaders and has been found to be a blasphemer. Um, that blasphemy is a crime punishable by death under the Mosaic law, as you know. But somehow death by stoning, which is how you would basically do it, um, which is definitely done by the Jews at this time, does not seem to be enough to satisfy the religious leaders. They want a crucifixion. And to, ne- to get that, they need the help of the Romans. And we explored some of that last week in our breakout groups. The religious leaders bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate on charges of sedition, saying he stirred the people to rebellion against Rome and has declared himself king of the Jews. Well, Pilate can, of course, find no evidence that Jesus has done any such thing because he hasn't. Um, But the religious leaders whip the crowd into a frenzy and publicly challenge Pilate, saying that to side with Jesus as king is to side against Caesar. So backed into a corner, Pilate washes his hands of the whole affair and turns Jesus over to be crucified. But first, he orders a sign for Jesus' cross that says in three languages, the three languages of this region, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, that this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Well, the chief priests protest, saying, don't write that he is King of the Jews, but only that he said he is King of the Jews. The Pilate just waves them off, saying, what I've written, I have written. Jesus' arrest and trial by the religious leaders was in the wee hours of Thursday morning before dawn. And the events of the rest of that day, the trials before Herod and Pilate, Jesus' flogging, the mocking and beating by both Pilate's soldiers and Herod's, the questioning, the abuse by Herod and his soldiers, the negotiations with the religious leaders, and the release of Barabbas. I mean, that that was a lot of stuff that had to happen, and a lot of it involved traveling back and forth between locations. All that took some hours. Now, the gospel accounts are not specific as to timing and, in some cases, flatly contradict each other. So Jesus could have been flogged late in the afternoon and beaten and mocked overnight and then dragged out to finish his hearing before Pilate early Friday morning, or it all could have been finished sometime on Thursday late, you know, late afternoon, I would think. Some people say, oh, yeah, it could have been done by nine in the morning. And I'm thinking, "Uh uh-uh, no, it couldn't. But no matter what you think, I think Jesus spends Thursday night in prison. I think this takes all day long, and they throw him in prison Thursday night. And it's now early on Friday morning. This is where we're going to pick up the story this week. Friday is a day of preparation for the coming Sabbath for the next day or late that day, which will it's going to be a high Sabbath because it falls during the week of Passover. Jesus beaten and bleeding, weak from his flogging, wearing his own ragged clothes, is led off by the soldiers to be crucified. As is the custom in that day, Jesus drags his own cross, which is likely just the large horizontal piece. The upright pieces would be up on the hill awaiting the condemned men. Two other men, robbers, 
also dragged their crosses up the hill, the hill named Golgotha, which means place of the skull. The cross piece Jesus is dragging is heavy, sturdy enough to bear his weight. And in his weakened state, even the Romans can see that no amount of beating is going to enable him to carry it all the way up Golgotha. The soldiers dragoon a random man who happens to be traveling into Jerusalem just as the procession of condemned men is leaving the city. Now, this is a big procession. It it includes not only the soldiers, the condemned men, the gawkers, the mourners, but also the religious leaders who are undoubtedly congratulating themselves and perhaps mocking Jesus. Now, this man is named Simon, and he comes from Cyrene on the coast of Africa. He's, you know, maybe he's a trader who has finally made it to Jerusalem after a long trip, thinking to take advantage of the crowds of people in town for Passover week. We don't really know anything about him. But imagine his alarm and dismay at being stopped and accosted by the Roman soldiers. He, He probably knows nothing of the drama surrounding Jesus. He's probably never even heard of Jesus. All he knows is that he is a stranger in a strange land, a foreigner, the other, and he is being forced to carry a cross. He must be terrified. Jesus stumbles along ahead of Simon and the cross. As he goes, he hears the weeping of women. Many of his female disciples who have supported his ministry, and and many of whom have traveled with him from Galilee, remain steadfastly by his side throughout his execution. Mary Magdalene, who we know was a disciple, was there along with a woman named Salome and another Mary who is identified as the mother of James the Younger and Joseph. Other women there are Mary, the wife of Clopas, um, who we don't really know much about, and Mary, the mother of the sons of thunder, the disciples James and John. And of course, Jesus' own mother, Mary. Lots of Marys. And it's possible that some of these are overlapping identities um, and that the women are simply described differently in the four Gospels. Uh, It seems like everybody is named Mary. One thing the gospel writers agree on, though, is that the women stand by Jesus throughout his ordeal. They're relatively invisible to this patriarchal society. They remain at the cross after his death, even after the other people leave. It is from the women that we have the whole story. And now, as Jesus stumbles towards Golgotha, the women are close enough that he can hear them weeping. Jesus turns to them and says, you're weeping over the wrong thing, daughters of Jerusalem. Don't weep for me. Look ahead. A time is coming when you will think it is better never to have had children. And then he quotes a prophecy from Hosea. He says, they will say to to the mountains, hide us and to the hills, fall on us. Now, when Jesus quotes a passage in scripture, he's got the whole passage in mind. So he's speaking a dire warning to his followers and his relatives. He doesn't want them to focus on his crucifixion. 
He wants them to stay awake and alert and be ready for what's coming next. Even weak and dying and on his way to his own crucifixion, he's still trying to prepare the people he's leaving behind. Here's a paraphrase of the rest of the prophecy that Jesus is quoting. Israel is a vine without fruit except idols. They are guilty of a divided heart. The Lord will bring down their idols. They say, we've had no king since we abandoned Yahweh. We don't need a king anyway. They and the kings of all the nations around them will be utterly disgraced. The places of their idol worship will be swept away. Thorns and thistles will grow on their altars. They will say to the mountains, hide us, and to the hills, fall on us. Then Jesus says to the women, if people are acting like this when the tree is still green, then what will they do when the tree has withered? You see, Jesus is warning his followers that this is happening now. This prophecy is being fulfilled. The people are rejecting Yahweh again, and they will soon be swept away. The misery, the misery will be so great that people will be begging for death. This actually happens a mere 40 years later. In 66 CE, when the Jews finally do mount a large-scale revolt, the Roman army will descend on them. And in 70 common era, the Romans crush Jerusalem and destroy the temple, leaving only one wall standing, the one we know today as the Western Wall. But I suspect these distraught women are far too caught up in the emotion of Jesus' execution to remember all of Hosea's uh, prophecy and to even absorb what he's trying to say to them. The procession finally reaches the top of Golgotha. It's a grim place near the road. There are already multiple crosses on Golgotha with corpses hanging from them and vultures picking at them. The Romans leave the bodies up as a reminder and a deterrent to other would-be criminals and insurrectionists. Jesus and the other two criminals are stripped naked. The heavy cross pieces may have been fastened to the uprights as they lie on the ground as, as they're shown in this picture, or it's possible the uprights may have been permanently affixed upright and the men and the um, nailed to the crossbars and then the whole crossbar and man hoisted up onto the, onto the uprights. We do not have much archaeological evidence at all because this is all wood. So we have to go with, you know, just the stories as they've been passed down. Um, so I, I'm going with they, they're going to put the crossbar on the upright while it's lying on the ground. I think that's. I think that's what's happening and that's what's showing in the picture. So that's what we're going to go with. The, the pain of that cross on Jesus raw whipped back must be excruciating. He undoubtedly cries out. Nails are driven through his wrists. And based on the scant archaeological evidence we do have, nails were probably also driven through his feet from the front of the ankle through the heel bone, or it's possible his feet may have been placed on either side of the cross and the nails driven through his ankles from the sides. 
Jesus is offered a drink of wine mixed with myrrh to act as a mild painkiller, but Jesus refuses. He has told his disciples he will not drink wine again until he drinks it together with them in his father's kingdom. Once properly positioned and nailed into place, the Roman soldiers nail the sign above Jesus' head with his charges on it. It is Pilate's sign that says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then the soldiers lift the cross and settle it into place with a heavy jolt. Jesus is crucified at 9 a.m. on Friday. He is already very weak. And as he is crucified, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They do not realize what they're doing. The other two men, the robbers, are crucified on either side of him. Once done, the soldiers divide up Jesus' clothing between them. He won't be needing it anymore. But when one of the soldiers sees that Jesus' undertunic has been woven as a single tubular piece without any seams, he realizes it is a fine piece of weaving and suggests to the others that rather than tearing it into four pieces to share, they cast lots to see who would get to keep the whole garment. John says this fulfills a passage from one of David's Psalms, Psalm 22, which says in part, They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Jesus himself will be quoting from this very psalm in a minute. Dying of crucifixion takes a very long time, sometimes as much as 24 hours. Pictures often show a small platform beneath Jesus' feet, but that would not be correct. Instead, the process is cruelly slowed down by a narrow shelf about midway up to give a little support to the torso. It is a constant agony trying to shift weight between the injured wrists and feet. The whole intent is to torture and shame the criminal as long as possible while he slowly asphyxiates. Excruciating. We get that word for pain from this particular means of torture. I think folks have the general impression that Golgotha was somewhere lonely and isolated, but that's not the case either. The Gospels and Roman practices make it clear that this place of crucifixions is right beside the road. That's the whole point. Crucifixion is supposed to be a very public shaming of the criminal's naked body, and it is supposed to be a grim deterrent to any other would-be insurrectionists. As Jesus and the two thieves hang on their crosses, passers-by on the road hurl insults at Jesus, saying, You there, the one destroying the temple in three days and building it up again. Save yourself if you are the Son of God. The chief priest, the scribes, and the other religious leaders shout, Hey, if you are the Messiah, get down off that cross and we'll believe in you. Can you imagine how tempting that must have been to Jesus? And do you think they would have believed him even then? No, they would have killed him. If someone doesn't want to believe, if they have too much to lose by believing, then it doesn't matter what evidence you show them. 
as hateful as they are being, it nevertheless seems reasonable from the outside looking in to, you know, to any other person who doesn't have a stake in this, that if Jesus is truly the son of God and the actual Messiah, he would save himself, right? And in fact, Muslims hold that God would never allow such a great prophet as Jesus to die in such a way. The Quran says, and I paraphrase, they did not kill or crucify Jesus, son of Mary. It was just made to appear so. No, God raised him up to himself, and Jesus will bear witness accordingly on the day of judgment. The Muslims revere Jesus, and they don't dispute that a crucifixion occurred. Jesus' crucifixion is a well-documented historical fact. They just believe it was someone who God miraculously made to look like Jesus. Who that someone was is a matter of conjecture within Islam, with possible candidates being Judas Iscariot, Simon the Cyrene, or even one of the soldiers who did the crucifying. Nevertheless, I think the Muslims' steadfast belief that God could not possibly have allowed such a thing to happen to his beloved prophet is a beautiful sentiment, and I hold the root of their belief, their trust in the goodness of God, in tender respect. But I also know that God's people have had a long history of killing their prophets, and terrible things, perhaps even worse than crucifixion, happen to good people all the time. We know this. It is part of death and evil perpetrated in the world by people who love the darkness more than the light. So I, ha I have no doubt at all that Jesus was the one crucified. As the onlookers hurl insults, one of the thieves crucified next to Jesus also abuses him, saying, you're the Messiah, aren't you? So save yourself and us. But the other thief says, have you no fear of God? You and I deserve this, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responds, I tell you for sure, you will be with me in paradise this very day. This bit of the conversation is only recorded in Luke, but according to Luke, Jesus knows that although his body is dying, he himself continues to live in the presence of the Father. There is one more thing for Jesus to do. There are four women huddled together near the foot of the cross, and one of them is Jesus' mother, Mary. It is apparent in this moment that his mother Mary is a believer. While Jesus' own brothers and sisters seem to have completely turned their backs on him, they are not named here as being at the foot of the cross. The split in Jesus' family must have been so bad that his brothers and sisters have rejected Mary entirely, at least in this moment. I say this because from the cross, Jesus sees his beloved disciple, John, and says to Mary, Lady, here is your son. And to John, he says, here is your mother. 
And from that time on, John cares for Mary in his own home. Jesus has been on the cross for three hours now. It is now noon and darkness falls on the whole land. The darkness abides until three o'clock. And then at three o'clock, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama asabtani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We as Christians have often been taught that God left Jesus alone on that cross in this moment, that God deserted him as part of his punishment. I think that is a grievously wrong teaching, and I'll explain why in a minute. But for now, let's put ourselves in the place of the people at the foot of the cross. What did they think? Well, the people hearing those first two words, Eli, Eli, misunderstand Jesus. Remember, Jesus is dying. He's mumbling. The people say he's calling Elijah, which in Hebrew would be pronounced Eliha. Eli means my God, but Eliha with just that extra ah sound at the end, is the name of Elijah, the great prophet whom Hebrew scripture prophesies will come before the Messiah. So you can see why the crowd is murmuring about this. Jesus had told them that John the Baptist was the Elijah prophesied to come, but few people believed him. They're still expecting Elijah to appear at any moment. Even in the modern Seder nowadays at Passover, Jews still set a place for and open a door during the ceremony for Elijah to enter. Some people here at the cross hope against hope that Elijah will come rescue Jesus, while others take it as more proof that Jesus is a raving lunatic. But Jesus did not call for Elijah to rescue him. Jesus is quoting the opening line of Psalm 22. And as we all know by now, when Jesus quotes a passage, he is quoting it in context. It seems worth it to me to look at what is in Jesus' heart in these last moments before he dies. Has he truly despaired? Has God really forsaken him? I urge you to read the whole psalm carefully on your own and listen to it as Jesus' dying words. But here is a condensed version. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You are the one Israel praises. You are the one we trust. When our ancestors trusted you, you responded. I am scorned and mocked. Everyone hurls insults at me. Ha, they say, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. But I do trust you. I have trusted you since childhood. Do not be far from me, for there is no one else to help me. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart melts like wax. People are staring at me. They divide up my robes and cast lots for my clothing. But you, Yahweh, do not be far from me. 
You are my strength. Hurry to help me. Deliver my life, my one and only being, from the power of the dogs. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Honor and fear the Lord, O Israel, for he has neither despised nor turned his back on the afflicted. Nor has he hidden his face, but he heard his cries. I will praise you in the great assembly. My vows I will fulfill. And look at what his vows are right here. The lowly will eat and be filled. All who seek him will praise him and have life in their hearts. And the results of this will be all nations will turn to the Lord and will humble themselves before him. And they will declare his justice, his righteousness to the coming generations. I don't know if this is coming across well in the translation, but what is happening is that in the end, all people will see the absolute rightness and perfection of the justice God has wrought. Everything will be set right and all the people will marvel at it. The Psalms, the, the Psalm 22 ends with this. To the people not yet born, the nations will say, the Lord has done it. The psalm started with Jesus echoing King David's cries of misery. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But look at the full context of what is being said here. Jesus is saying God has not turned his back on those suffering. Jesus is reaffirming his knowledge of this and his own commitment to see this through to the end. He is saying he will lead the praises of God among the, all the people of the world. Jesus remembers that God will do this. God will set even this crucifixion right. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that astounding? Jesus was not accusing God of turning his back on him in his hour of need. Quite the opposite. We need to read this psalm together every year on Good Friday. These are Jesus' last thoughts. And they were thoughts of absolute trust and faith in God's goodness. Someone at the foot of the cross runs to soak a sponge in wine vinegar and lifts it up for Jesus to drink. They say, let's see if Elijah comes to help him. But Jesus cries in a loud voice, it is finished. Father, into your hands, I entrust my spirit, my breath. And with that, he breathes his last breath and dies. In that moment, the curtain to the Holy of Holies in the temple is split in two. We'll give some more thought to this in our breakout groups. When Jesus dies, there's lightning, the ground shakes, tombs crumble, and according to Matthew, many of the saints who are, that's what they call just regular people of God, who have, quote, fallen asleep are raised from the dead. 
the centurion and the soldiers guarding Jesus are terrified and exclaim, this man was the son of God. This is a difficult story to tell. Emotions run deep here. And there may have been quite a bit of material here that has never been presented to you in quite this way before. In our breakout groups, please be tender with each other, knowing that this is holy ground. We will put into conversation two important concepts, Jesus' last words from Psalm 22 and the tearing of the curtain in the temple. All right. I think everybody's back. I, I, I sidetracked our whole group. I don't even know what the paper said. <laughs> <laughs> we had a great okay. moment. Yes, we did. Talk to me. Renee, you're in tears, baby. Yeah, we need Woody to finish what he was saying. Oh, um, Renee posted something on Facebook a few days ago. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something about bringing people to God. And I don't remember the, the context, but my response was that I believe, this is just me, I believe God is the spirit of love. And so if you bring somebody to love, you bring them to God. Amen. God yeah, is I love. have a lot of a religious trauma. <laughs> and it just got blown away. Oh, I love you, Renee. I, you were so, you have been with us since the very beginning of the gentle ramble. And you trusted us. You trusted me to not hurt you. And I'm so glad that you have had the courage to stay. I'm learning God loves me. Yeah. I can't imagine growing up in a church and receiving any other message than that, Renee. I can't. I can. I can. I don't know how people return. (laughs) You know? Well, I was a double, I had a double whammy because I was, women were responsible for sin coming into the world. And other than Jesus dying and bleeding on the cross, there was no forgiveness of sin at all. And that my sin actually put him on the cross. And I just learned that I didn't. I didn't kill Jesus. Oh, Renee. (laughs) Oh, I hope you can undo that. Her struggle is a little stronger than mine, but we're both in the same place. And learning that Psalm 22 stuff just blew my mind. That's what just finally blew it away. I didn't know that's what he was saying. I thought that because of, well, my sin, that's why God left him. That's why he had to die the way he did. That that. God turned his back because he couldn't look on sin. And then Julia pointed out to us that the entire 
Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, God was looking at sin. And that, yeah, that's the part that got me. That God didn't turn his back on Jesus. He's never turned his back on me. And there is nothing that we can do that would cause God to hold us in contempt like that, to push us away, to not forgive us, that nothing, we can't, we don't have the power to hurt God, (laughs) you know, like that. No, we don't. God, God, see, I think even, even, even those religious leaders who were the villains of the story, I think that 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 at the very at the very center of that tabernacle of that people was the place that was the holy of holies, the place where God dwelled. And it was so holy. Nobody could go in there. But that place was named the mercy seat. Because of mercy being God's infinite characteristic. It's just, it, it kills me to see the steady drip, drip, drip of guilt that is laid Ooh. on Christians. Yes. You know, Renee was, Renee was apologizing to us in the session. Um, we didn't get to our questions, but we did something much more important here, I believe, with Renee. Um, and I said, my breakdown was over the followers of men, because I inherently believed that, you know, if we didn't, if we didn't bring people to Christ, they were banished to hell. And I just always carried this guilt of how can people that have never known Jesus just be banished to hell? How how does that work? So, yeah, this whole Bible study has been a pretty big revelation. Mm-hmm. Martha, I saw you had something to say. I'm actually going to ask Donna to share what her thought about why the curtain was torn. I was just giving, again, I'm not, I think it's cool within, I mean, this is what I had ultimately come to understand about, you're talking about the curtain tearing, the curtain was what was between the Holy of Holies and where only the priests and everyone could go back to during all of the, you know, processions or whatever all was going on to connect with God. So only the priests had that, and that was where the, the Ark of the Covenant or the Tabernacle or, or the different terminology or different things were back there. And when Jesus died, everything that shifted, everything that that curtain was ripped and it was no longer the place that only the priest could have. That it was now you know what I cried I don't even know why. <laughs> it was now available to everybody. Again, back to the teaching it wasn't available to everybody. <laughs> that, that's kind of between that old and weak now. Yeah. It's a big deal for that curtain to be ripped because look what's behind that curtain. 
behind that curtain is the original promise between God and his people. And that promise was, I will be your God. You will be my people and you will bless the entire world. What is also behind that curtain and is now out are, are all God's commandments, the law, the way of living, just, you know, how to walk in this world, you know, which now we understand a whole lot better because of what Jesus taught us, right? Um, we, uh, we understand that better. And also in there was the staff of the high priest of Aaron, and that budded overnight in a because there was a contest. It was like there were people who were um, attacking Moses and Aaron and rebelling and saying, we don't have to listen to you. Who made you boss over us? And so God said, okay, you have all those men and Aaron lay their staffs down. And in the morning, in, in my presence, and in the morning, you come back and look at those staffs. And when you, when they came back, Aaron's staff had grown branches, grown fl- and grown flowers. It had budded. And as a sign of God's, when God calls us, God will be there for us when we are attacked, when we are in need. That's what that says. And that was such an important per- lesson that needed to be in this Holy of Holies, in this place. And the other thing that was in supposed to be back in that place was a jar of manna which is obviously God's going to provide for whatever we need in whatever situation we're in doing whatever it is he's called us to do, whatever that may look like. And that looks different for each of us. It looks different. Okay. And, and then, as I said, all of that is enclosed. Those Four things, those four important central core things to how we are God's people and what God means to us are housed in the mercy seat. There is no, I think in that moment, God tore the hierarchy and said, these folks have no more power over you. There is therefore now no condemnation. That's right. Wow. Woody, do you mind if I um, ask your question or would you mind to share the question that you had about the scripture? Because I think um, that was pretty powerful. I don't remember which part you're referring to. Um, feel, Feel free to go ahead and say it. Sure, sure. Woody said that he thought he remembered um, in one of the versions of the story that um, when Jesus said something and they said, oh, look, he's, you know, reaching out to God. They said that one of them said, no, he's quoting scripture. Ah, I, I heard that somewhere, but it may or may not have been in the Bible. It, it, it may be. This is all jumbled up together. Let me look real quick. I can find it quickly. Um. Nothing to that effect in Luke. Let's look at Mark. 
it was it was probably in some movie that I saw about the <laughs> crucifixion. Okay, nothing in Mark. Um, let me just look real quick here. Listen, he's calling Elijah. Um, then that may be what you're thinking of, where the people said when he said, El- "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Eli, Eli, Lama Sabat or whatever it was um uh and somebody else said no he's calling elijah that may be what you think oh thinking of you know uh, maybe so okay and because they thought because eli eli and eliha sound the same if you're mumbling you know yes and uh nothing in matthew and let me look real quick in john but even if it's Elijah, not in there, it's not a unique um, present. You've heard it before. Right. 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 We've heard you've it before. Heard it before. It's not a right. unique idea. You've heard it before. Yeah. It's not in, in, in any of the Gospels that I can see. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. But I can see that even referring to Elijah is still referring to scripture. Yeah. Old Testament yeah. prophecy, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. They just have still not believed Jesus when he said that John the Baptist was the Elijah that was to come and that Jesus is the Messiah. So right. it's just huge, so deep and so powerful and so amazing, this part. The last, I guess the last thing, I wanted to say was um, kind of along the lines of that, that curtain being torn, that what is also underlying all of this is judgment and justice. And I want to remind you that John three tells us that the judgment of the world, the judgment of all of us is only that we love darkness more than light. And and I constantly pray about that because I do sometimes love darkness more than light. <laughs> you know, I I I I don't want to, but I do. It is a true judgment. Okay? I don't always love darkness more than light. I don't even most of the time love darkness more than light. You know? I love God. We love God. That's it's it's like we would never expect our kids to be perfect. Never. Nobody expects their kids to be perfect or to even love us all the time, especially if they're teenagers. Right. Right. <laughs> we love them all the time, though. We love them. And the judgment is different than the justice that is meted out. The justice that Jesus says right here in Psalm 22 is that God in his mercy will hear the cries of the despised and they will eat and be filled. The justice of God is not focused on the perpetrators. It's focused on the people who were hurt on restoring them and healing them. Everything that is wrong will be healed and restored 
and everything will be set right. And as for the people who are the perpetrators, uh, there's a there's a phrase that we all know about hurt hurting people hurt people. Mm-hmm. I think God's all about healing that too. Martha. I was wondering if um, Gail or has ever used Psalm 22 or anybody's ever heard it used at a funeral or in pastoral care as someone is approaching um, their death. I don't know. I haven't. I don't usually, I don't usually get to pick the scripture that's read in a funeral. So it's not, you know, the family picks it and they tend to right. things they're familiar with. Yeah. I think there's a huge place for this Psalm. Um, Good point there. So a Psalm of suffering and hope. Yeah. Trust. Yeah. And yeah. Be confidence. Yes. Confidence in God. Yes. Yeah. We can be confident. We did not kill Jesus and God loves us. And is delighted with us. That's huge. A friend of mine used to say, God danced the day you were born. Yes. <laughs> and I believe that for each one of us. And I think God still dances every day we wake up and put our feet on the ground. You know? <laughs> or lay in bed if we can't put our feet on the ground. I think God dances with us, dances with us every day and it dances in delight over us. And I just, I think that that would be a great way to end today. I love you guys. It's been just, yes, love to all of you. It's been a, it's been a, a pearl in a field, a pearl of great price that we found today. Love you. See you next week. Love y'all. Thank you. Bye.